All right. Welcome to Sunday School. We're beginning our we are we are beginning our series on J. Gresham Mason's book Christianity and Liberalism. So if you don't have a copy, you can purchase one online reformationheritagebooks.com. I think Amazon has some copies. Um, this is the Erdman's edition with a forward by Carl Truman. So this will be our first lecture, an introductory lecture, and then we will go through chapter by chapter through his book. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again we come before thee. We ask the Lord that thou would lead us into all truth and righteousness, that would protect us from error, O Lord. And as we examine the orthodoxy of the past and the errors of the past, Lord, that we might learn how to avoid error and walk in the paths of truth and righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by reading a section of scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll read the whole chunk. It's quite relevant for liberalism in the church. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Apostle Paul writes, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these men also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. For out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast heard and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus." All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Amen. As we go through this book, we will see just how relevant that is, that liberal Protestant Christianity, if you can call it that, for it is simply a lie that it is even Christianity, as we'll see, is ever learning and never able to come unto a knowledge of the truth. It is 
deceiving and being deceived constantly. It denies the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. We will have time for questions at the end. I'm leaving time for that. So let's go through what we have in front of us. First, part of our introduction will be why this book? Why have I chosen a 100-year-old book titled Christianity and Liberalism to go through? Is it even relevant after 100 years? If so, how? Well, I argue that nothing could be more relevant in our time. And this is because no other false religion is more prominent among us in our time than Protestant Christian liberalism. Liberalism has affected every aspect of our culture, as we'll see next week in Machen's introductory uh, chapter. As As Christian spirituality has become, in our day, more and more liberal, the church and the society in which it dwells has declined and suffered. Machen thoroughly points out all of the dangers of this false religion called liberalism or modernism or progressivism. This religion is still alive and well and still being promulgated in the mainline churches and seminaries. Princeton Seminary, Fuller Seminary, Union Theological Seminary, seminary after seminary after seminary that belongs to the mainline churches. It's alive and well there. What was it? Union Theological Seminary last year had an animal and tree worshiping uh, event. Christian. Used to be a pretty solid reformed seminary. Worshiping trees. Once you understand liberalism, modernism, how it's affected the church, you'll realize that it's not only in those mainline seminaries, but that liberalism can be traced throughout the teachings of our modern, reformed, conservative theologians and teachers. It's very much alive and well. The theological liberals have influenced the thought of even our best conservative theologians. Now, some obvious teachings that we can point to that liberalism puts forward, obviously tree worship, animal worship that they're doing at Union Theological Seminary, uh, James Cone, those kinds of people doing gender theory, critical race theory, the eternal subordination of the sun, universalism that all will be saved, apocatastasis that even Satan will be redeemed, uh, inclusivism that maybe just because they're not Christian they can still be brought in. This is affecting not just the mainline seminaries where it runs rampant, but most evangelical seminaries and even many reformed seminaries and thus into the churches. They, re- they teach critical race theory, gender theory, all these other things that I listed. And also we see every various possibility of the rejection of biblical infallibility, inerrancy, and inspiration. Fuller Seminary has a statement on biblical inerrancy where they reject inerrancy. Inerrancy would be, it can be defined a few different ways, but the most common way is that the Bible is without error in everything it teaches. So their statement, they would reject that and say that there's definite errors in the scriptures. However, it's infallible 
Because when it talks about geology, science, things like that, it can be wrong. It can err. They would say history. It can be wrong about that. But when it teaches spiritual truth and theology, the Bible is correct. It's infallible. That's Fuller statements or Fuller Seminary statement. I mean, we have people like Andy Stanley, the unhitching, so popular evangelicalism, unhitching the Old Testament. This all stems from the same place. The Enlightenment. The Enlightenment. Christian, Christian, quote-unquote, Protestant liberalism. But the influence goes much deeper than those other things I just listed, gender theory, critical race theory, etc., etc., And to a more foundational aspect of our faith, the Holy Scriptures themselves. So we just saw with Fuller. The battle for the Bible, I wasn't alive for that, but it was fought in the 70s and 80s. People like MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, uh, so many of these great men that we've looked up to. Uh, R.C. Sproul recently died a couple years back, but you know he was a great defender of the faith. And they fought this battle for the Bible in the 70s and 80s. When neo-Orthodoxy through coming out of Princeton Seminary was very popular and inerrancy was being rejected. Fuller, sta- Fuller Seminary was coming out with their statement, etc., etc., and they produced what is known as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. They fought that battle tooth and nail in the 70s and 80s. But we come to understand that it largely failed when we look at what is being taught in even our best Reformed seminaries. Ancient Near East studies, Second Temple Judaic studies, Text criticism, source criticism, historical criticism, and many other liberal and enlightenment-based methodologies are being put forward to students at these seminaries, in conservative seminaries even, all over the world as if they were faithful methods for understanding and interpreting the scriptures. Ancient Near East studies. Students are taught that the Bible was simply a compilation of various human authors, writing in their own human context, with their own human experiences, and that God may have used these experiences, these human means, as a means for writing down the scriptures. The Moses, meaning a Moses group of editors and collators and collaborators, compiled the Pentateuch and edited it, the first five books of the, New, of the Old Testament. They borrowed laws and morals and thoughts about deity and the absolute and God, from the surrounding Near Eastern peoples. That's what Near Eastern religious studies is all about. And they took those, the Israelites took those, edited them, boiled them down, compiled them into what we know as the first five books of the Old Testament. It's a version of the Near Eastern religions for the Israelites. And now, even amongst Reformed circles, it is in vogue to say that Moses adapted Hammurabi's code for the Old Testament laws. Or that much can be learned about the Christian doctrine of justification by studying Second Temple period Jews and what they believed about justification. I don't care what they believed about justification. They were heretics, sons of Satan, that rejected Jesus Christ. Why would I give a rip what they think about justification or their understanding of the Old Testament? No, thank you. And this is being put forward in our reformed seminaries. Even God's name is under attack. And let me preface this by whether you think it's Jehovah or Yahweh is simply irrelevant in a degree here. I take Jehovah along with all the reformers and Puritans 
But if, even if you take Yahweh, this is where the Yahweh doctrine is coming from. The newly created name Yahweh, which neologians have attempted to replace God's name Jehovah with, is said, this is what they're teaching. So it's not even just the name Yahweh, this is what they're teaching behind it. Is that the name Yahweh was taken by the Israelite people out of the Canaanite pantheon of deities. Yahweh being just one of the many names of their Baalim, their gods. The Baals in the Old Testament you read about? El, Baal, Yah, etc. So they just took it and adapted it once they became monotheistic. Because the Israelites, as we know, anyone who reads the Old Testament plainly knows that they were not always monotheistic, right? Elohim is plural, so they believed in many gods. Once they went to Canaan, then they chose one. And they chose one of theirs named Yah. So regardless, wherever you fall in the name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah, this is what they're teaching behind Yahweh. And I'm not making this up. If you pick up the standard textbook, Basics of, basics of Ugaritic, which Ugaritic is a language that the Canaanites spoke. And this textbook is published by Zondervan Publishers, and it's widely used in our seminaries during Near Eastern studies. You learn Ugaritic, and in that grammar, they have a lengthy discussion on how the Israelites figured out what to name their god. And then they borrowed it from the Canaanite pantheon of deities. It is taught that by learning about ancient Near East peoples and their religions, we can learn something about how Jewish religion came to be, including the name of their God. This comes from a discipline called the philosophy of religions, which was popular in the 1800s in Germany by higher critics, Enlightenment, German liberalism. Truly, liberalism is alive and well even amongst the most orthodox and conservative denominations. And even when it isn't taught directly, it's often refused to be acknowledged that it's even a problem or to be condemned. So you'll have a conversation with these these reformed men that I respect teaching these seminaries, and you say, here's a problem with the ancient Near Eastern studies. You go, no, that's, 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 that's pushing it too far. We don't, we don't teach that or anything. Go, Do you not see the problem here? Here's the source. And that's what Machen's book is all about. Here's where it comes from. Here's the fount. So what doctrines are affected by liberalism? The origin of man, the fall of man, the doctrine of sin, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the Trinity, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of scripture. In a word, each and every core doctrine of Christianity is affected. Whether in part in our conservative and reform seminaries, or in a whole in these mainline liberal seminaries. Some forms of liberalism reject all these doctrines, and some only a few. And others simply undermine them all, as we see in the evangelical landscape today. So the true danger of liberalism is that it sounds like Christianity. It sounds intellectual. It sounds orthodox. They will, they will even go and affirm. They'll affirm, yeah, we teach that, we believe that. Core doctrines like the virgin birth of Christ, like the atonement, like the inspiration of scriptures, they'll, they'll affirm it. They will. But what they mean is not what we mean. It's not what the Bible means, and it's not what the historic, orthodox, reformed Christians throughout history meant. 
Like, even Karl Barth later on, who broke with liberalism and was a great critic of liberalism, here's what they'll do. When asked, do you believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ? Do you believe in the empty tomb? He said, we do not preach an empty tomb, but a risen Christ. Doesn't that sound good? You see the subtlety. Now, much of what we hear in this book will sound like it was written yesterday. Much of it will shock us. Much of it will confuse us. When we look at our favorite and most trusted authors in light of it. When we look at what we've been taught about the history of America, it will shock us. But nonetheless, it is important to see where liberalism has affected our minds and ultimately, as experientially reformed Christians, our hearts. We are all, we are all affected by it. At its core, liberalism is man-centered, anti-supernatural, and anti the eminency of God, that God is present and with us. And this we will see as we follow Machen's arguments. A brief biographical sketch of J. Gresham Machen. Who was J. Gresham Machen? John Gresham Machen was born at Baltimore on July 28, 1881. He was the middle of three sons born to a southern lawyer named Arthur Machen, whose brother had fought for the Confederates in the Civil War. So his uncle. He was raised as a wealthy aristocrat. His father, Arthur, was an Episcopalian, and his mother, Mary, was a Presbyterian. She taught her son the Westminster Shorter Catechism from a very early age. The family attended Franklin Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and Machen's upbringing was considered to be privileged. This is why so many of the critical race theory people in the Southern Baptist Convention hate him. He attended a private college and received a classical education which taught him to read fluently in Latin and Greek from a young age. Any of you that I've helped uh, study Greek know that I always use his grammar, his New Testament Greek for beginners. So he he learned it from a, a young age, not just New Testament Greek, but classical Greek. At some point in his youth, Machen came to a personal faith in Christ, but there was no dramatic conversion experience. In later years, he was not even able to recall at what point he was saved from some journals, etc. We think it might be possibly January 4th, 1896. Because that's when he publicly professed faith and became a church member in Franklin Street Presbyterian Church. In 1898, the 17-year-old Machen began to study at John Hopkins University for his undergraduate degree, and he performed sufficiently well to gain a scholarship. He majored in classics, Greek, Latin, and was a member of the Phi Kappa Psi fraternity. Despite having some indecisiveness about his future, in 1902, Machen decided to study theology at Princeton Seminary, which still at that time was known as a bastion for Reformed Orthodoxy, specifically Presbyterian Orthodoxy. And while he was going to Princeton Seminary, he simultaneously studied for a Master of Arts degree in philosophy at Princeton University. So Princeton Seminary and University, side by side. He is, he is said to have retained a dry but accurate orthodoxy at this time. There wasn't much life to it, but he was orthodox. In 1905, Mason, Machen pursued theological studies in Germany for a year. This is of particular importance to Machen's life, to our understanding of Machen, and especially our understanding of this book. In Germany, he studied both at the University of Marburg 
and the theological school in Göttingen. And he studied under the famous liberal theologian Wilhelm Hermann. Indeed, Hermann was one of the leading scholars of his day. He was a disciple of Ritzel, a captivating preacher, and a prolific author. He was a colleague of the famous German higher critic Adolf von Harnack. He's famous for his massive seven-volume work on the history of dogma, where he says all of the Pauline doctrines that we know came from Plato. And the the Christians messed up and, and, and brought it into Christianity and wrote it down in their books. One of his most famous and promising students, one of Wilhelm Hermann's most famous and and promising students, who would later break from his teachings and become his greatest critic, was Karl Barth, the Swiss Reformed theologian who started neo-Orthodoxy, you could say. Truly, if you were to study in Germany at the time, you would either be influenced or you would wish to be influenced by Hermann. So Machen goes and studies there, under Hermann. And after being exposed to the critics of Protestant liberalism at Princeton, so he was told all about these people, hey, you're going to go over to Germany, you're going to hear the craziest stuff, it's going to be so offensive, they don't know Jesus, etc., etc., he had very low view of liberals. In his mind, they were just dry intellectuals with no piety who desired to destroy Christianity. And here's the danger. When he arrived in Germany and sat under Hermann's preaching and teaching, he, just like Charles Hodge before him at Princeton, who had sat under Schleiermacher, was truly surprised. The caricature of the lifeless liberal, which he had developed in his mind, was shattered. Hermann, in spite of his attacks on the core doctrines of Christianity, appeared to be deeply spiritual and deeply pious. And it is here that we have a case study of the true danger of liberalism. In a letter to his father, he admitted being thrown into confusion about his faith, Machen did, because of the liberalism taught by Professor Wilhelm Hermann. He began to question what he had grown up believing about the Westminster Confession of Faith. He thought to himself, if these men, if these liberal men, who denied so much of what the Orthodox Reformed believe, but they could have so much more love for Jesus, so much more piety, so much more reverence for Christ then what was his Reformed faith? Was it true? If it was just dead orthodoxy? In a letter to his father, Machen wrote this, quote, The first time that I heard Hermann may almost be described as an epic in my life. Such an overpowering personality I think I almost never before encountered. Overpowering in the sincerity of religious devotion. My chief feeling with reference to him, is already one of deepest reverence. I have been thrown all into confusion by what he says. So much deeper is his devotion to Christ than anything I have known in myself during the past few years. Hermann affirms very little of what I have been accustomed to regard as essential to Christianity. Yet, there is no doubt in my mind that he is a Christian, and a Christian of a peculiarly earnest type. He is a Christian not because he follows Christ as a moral teacher, as he had been taught, but because his trust in Christ is practically, if anything more truly than theoretically, unbounded. Hermann has shown me something of the religious power which lies back of this great movement, which is now making a fight even for the control of the Northern Presbyterian Church in America, meaning liberalism. In New England, those who do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus are, generally speaking, religiously dead. However, in Germany... 
Herman has taught me that this is by no means the case. He believes that Jesus is the one thing in all the world that inspires absolute confidence and an absolute joyful subjection to God. That through Jesus, we come into communion with the living God and are made free from the world. It is the faith that is a real experience, a real revelation of God that saves us. Not the faith that consists in accepting as true a lot of dogmas on the basis merely of what others have said. Then he says this about Wilhelm's famous book. The Christian's communion with God is one of the greatest religious books I've ever read. Perhaps Hermann does not give the whole truth, and I certainly hope that he does not. At any rate, he has gotten hold of something that has been sadly neglected in the church and in the Orthodox theology. Perhaps he is something like the devout mystics of the Middle Ages. They were one-sided enough, but they raised a mighty protest against the coldness and deadness of the church and were forerunners of the Reformation. I know that was a long quote, but that is an extremely important quote. To sum up, what he's saying is, I, I, go to, I go to study with Wilhelm Hermann, and I see power, I see life, I see devotion to Christ. He might deny that Jesus is God, he might deny that he was born of a virgin, he might deny redemption even, but he loves Jesus. And my orthodox upbringing does not. Very true. John Piper, though there is much to disagree with him on, sums up well what Machen had experienced. Quote, what Machen seemed to find in Hermann was what he had apparently not found either in his home or at Princeton, namely, passion and joy and exuberant trust in Christ. At Princeton, he found solid learning and civil, formal, careful, aristocratic presentations of a fairly cool Christianity. He eventually came to see that the truth of the Princeton theology was a firmer ground for life and joy, thankfully. But at this stage in his life, the spirit in which it came, compared to Hermann's spirit, almost cost evangelicalism one of its greatest defenders. There is a great lesson here for teachers and preachers, that to hold young minds, there should be both intellectual credibility and joyful, passionate zeal for Christ, end quote. So here we see not only the dangerous subtlety of liberalism, but also the danger of cold, dead orthodoxy. How many people have we seen leave New Calvinism, Evangelicalism, and Reformed communions for, a sacrament, for the sacramental mysticism of the Roman Catholic Church, or the Greek Orthodox Church, or for the feel-good political sensitivity of the progressive mainliners? All the time. This was a trying time indeed for Machen. And although he had an enormous respect for Hermann, his time in Germany and his engagement with modernist theologians led him to reject the movement and embrace, once again, conservative, reformed theology more firmly than before. Thus we see that Machen experienced firsthand that deceptive allure and theological bankruptcy of Protestant liberalism that would allow him to know experientially what he would critique in this volume. A little background on the book. The origins of Christianity and liberalism. In the early 20th century, specifically in the 1920s, there was a massive controversy within American evangelical Christianity called the, the Modernist Fundamentalist Controversy. This controversy would eventually split many churches, including the Presbyterian denomination. 
The fundamentalists were made up of primarily Baptists and Presbyterians who held to what is called the five fundamentals of the Christian faith. And they held to these five fundamentals in opposition to the progressive or modernist Christians who wanted to deliver Christianity afresh to a modern audience. It was a Christianity that shucked off the shell of supernaturalism and offered itself as a rational, relevant, and revived faith for the modern man. These five fundamentals were put forward as more and more Presbyterian ministers were being installed that rejected them. The five fundamentals upheld by the 1910 Presbyterian General Assembly were these. Number one, the inspiration of the Bible by the Holy Spirit and the infallibility of Scripture as a result. Number two, the virgin birth of Christ. Number three, the belief that Christ's death was an atonement for human sin. Number four, the bodily resurrection of Christ. Number five, the historical reality of Christ's miracles. It was basic. And yet, there were ministers in the Presbyterian Church and all over the country at that time in different denominations that were rejecting them and yet being installed. And so, just a side comment, fast forward, what we see now is all sorts of men who can, I, I, you know, I agree with that statement of faith. But they reinterpret it into their own means. Deceived and deceiving. So the modernists were very upset by this move of the General Assembly. And they stated that the General Assembly was acting divisively. Schism. Since many of their ministers would not be able to uphold these fundamentals. That's not fair. You're going to cause disruption in the church. The most important thing is unity. We need unity. At any cost. So for the liberal, the divine inspiration and infallibility of the Bible is irrelevant to modern man's need for human progress and world peace. And thus, it did not need to be upheld. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ did not speak into the current problems of the age and should be discarded. The propitiatory sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for man's sin was not seen as useful for attaining the self-fulfillment of modern man and thus was trashed. Original sin did nothing to promote peace and unity or positive self-esteem in humanity. And as any other relic of the past, it should be set aside for something more helpful. The miracles of Jesus had nothing to say for today's world and thus were seen as extraneous. Thus, all of these core doctrines must either be reinterpreted or abandoned. What did liberalism offer in the place of these core doctrines? Primarily, these two things. The absolute fatherhood of God and the absolute brotherhood of man. Beautiful. Love, for love's sake, could unite. Ecumenicity could bring peace. Recognizing that the human race was all one big happy family alone could quench warfare. And only the recognition of the divine within us could spur on true human progress. Machen saw that such notions were merely sentimentalism and could never attain the lasting power that true Christianity had to offer. And this he knew firsthand. So the disputes over these fundamentals would lead, would lead to Machen presenting the core themes of this book before us, before the Ruling Elders Association of Chester Presbytery. 
and then its subsequent publication in the Princeton Theological Review, and then its expansion into this book. And eventually, it led to this, Machen's deposition from the ministry, the fracturing of the PCUSA, and the founding of the OPC, in which we stand. Praise the Lord. So what was Machen's thesis for this book? And what were some of its main themes? Liberalism and Christianity. Machen later, regre- Machen later regretted titling his book Christianity and Liberalism. He wished he had, he had, that he had given it this title, Christianity and Modernism, since modernism as a term had a much wider scope and better captured, he thought, the true nature of this false religion. Their religion was not a liberation from the dogmas of the past that are holding the church back, as the liberals suppose. That's what they said there, why we call us liberals. But it was a modern, naturalistic, and agnostic abandoning of Christianity altogether. It is good to keep in mind that Machen did not intend his book to be merely polemical, though obviously it was, but to primarily be a critique of modernist thought, which was invading the church. In the opening words to the book, Machen writes this, page one, quote, The purpose of this book is not to decide the religious issue of the present day, but merely to present the issue as sharply and clearly as possible, in order that the reader may be aided in deciding it for himself, end quote. So Machen would simply lay out what the liberals were teaching and contrast it with the doctrines of Christianity, allowing the reader to make his own decision. His goal was not division of the church, but a defense of the church's truth. Pages 1 and 2, he says this, quote, The type of religion which rejoices in the pious sound of traditional phrases, regardless of their meanings, or shrinks from controversial matters, will never stand amidst the shocks of life. In the sphere of religion, as in all other spheres, the things about which men are agreed are apt to be the things that are least worth holding. The really important things are the things about which men will fight. End quote. The modernist religion of the liberals was, for Machen, quote, a non-redemptive religion. End quote. It was a religion that could save no one, for it believed that no one had anything to be saved from. The heart of the movement was rooted in naturalism, Machen said, and the, quote, denial of any entrance of the creative power of God in connection with the origin of Christianity, end quote. So God really had nothing to do with Christianity popping up. For the liberal, Christ, for the liberal Christianity, like any other human cultic phenomenon, simply arose through natural evolutionary processes. It was simply the faith expression of this particular faith community around the Mediterranean Sea, which, funny enough, we often hear in our Reformed seminaries, do we not? About the Old Testament. Machen states that, that the liberals were attempting to answer two questions. Quote, what is the relation between Christianity and modern culture? That's the first question. And second, may Christianity be maintained in a scientific age? End quote. How did the liberals seek to answer this? Machen writes, quote, admitting that scientific objections may arise against the... Pre- sorry. Admitting that scientific objections 
may arise against the particularities of the Christian religion, against the Christian doctrines of the person of Christ, and of redemption through his death and resurrection, the liberal theologian seeks to rescue certain of the general principles of religion, of which these particularities are thought to be mere temporary symbols. And these general principles he regards as constituting the essence of Christianity. Again, shucking off the supernatural, ancient mindset and taking the kernel of truth that is left. For the liberal, once the shell of supernaturalism is discarded, then the true kernel of Christianity's relevance for modern man can be harvested. But Machen knew that when this process is done, there is no Christianity left. Only something to borrow from the German Gonzandes, totally other. He writes that, quote, what the liberal theologian has retained after abandoning to the enemy one Christian doctrine after another is not Christianity at all, but a religion which is so entirely different from Christianity as to belong in a distinct category. End quote. Indeed, for Machen and for us all as well, liberalism is not simply a different form of Christianity nor merely a Christian view with some definite errors. It's not just a Christian view that has some errors in it, like Arminians. I obviously would not say Arminians are unsaved for holding to Arminianism. I think they're in grave error, but they're not holding to some different religion. But this isn't the case with liberalism. It's not merely an erroneous view of Christianity. It's a different religion entirely. One rooted in Darwinian naturalistic philosophy and pure agnosticism. And he goes on to demonstrate that exact claim. This was Machen's goal in writing his book, to reveal that the liberal religion was not the Christian religion. In six chapters titled Doctrine, God and Man, the Bible, Christ, Salvation, and the Church, plus an introduction, Machen clearly demonstrates that what the liberals of his day and ours are promoting is not Christianity, but a false religion. Granted, Liberal Protestants speak much about Christianity. And they talk in depth and often with great piety about the doctrines of the Christian faith. But not like us. They don't mean Jesus as we mean Jesus. They don't mean God as we mean God. Conclusion. In the close to his introductory chapter, Machen writes this, quote, In setting forth the current liberalism now almost dominant in the church, over against Christianity, we are animated, therefore, by no merely negative or polemic purpose. On the contrary, by showing what Christianity is not, we hope to be able to show what Christianity is, in order that men may be led to turn from the weak and beggarly elements and have recourse again to the grace of God. End quote, page 13. For Machen, his book was to be eminently practical, experiential, and truly liberating in Christ. It was to create true liberals, those liberated from sin and united to Christ. As we continue to examine his book over the next few weeks, may we too be removed further from our modern errors and closer to the glorious grace of Christ. Amen. We have quite a bit of time for questions. Let's take a few. If you have